Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Feel Better with Tara Styles. I'm Tara Styles, and welcome to the show. Yay. All right, today you're going to want to grab your notebook, make sure there's lots of open space in there, a sharpened pencil, and get yourself somewhere calm and quiet and centered because we are in for a huge treat. Jeff Krasno is here to teach us a masterclass in how we can literally use our energy for good in the world. In business, in creating something, whether it's to reach a local community or a global community, really, how the heck do we do that in a way where we don't cause a lot of harm and cause so much good? And Jeff is the one (laughs) that has so much wisdom and experience in this, not just only from the business point of view, but from the heartfelt and thoughtful and mindful and environmental point of view as well. So this is an everything, everything all together, all at once. Jeff is the founder of Wanderlust Festival, that huge festival that was everywhere and really co-created this excitement about getting together in large groups in person. When I first met Mike, He dragged me to this wonderful yoga studio. A lot of you know this, I'm sure. Downtown Manhattan called Kula Yoga that was spearheaded and founded by Jeff's wife, Skylar. And Skylar is a super strong, super tough, but really nice person who's a yoga teacher. And her class was so hard in the best way possible. And she always played this really wonderful music and came up with these really long and challenging (laughs) creative sequences. And And we were both totally hooked. So I've known about Jeff for a long time. Jeff has a big history in the music business, also the artistry of music. And him and Skylar kind of go together in a way like peanut butter and jelly. It's just so good. (laughs) And Jeff is also, and now the CEO and founder of One Commune, which really makes sense bringing everything together. It's a masterclass, really like that cool platform masterclass that kind of has everything in all different disciplines, but for how to use your energy for good. So this is cool. (laughs) I can't believe I, I got Jeff for some time here. And on a personal note, Jeff was so generous to have a, a private conversation with Mike and I about our good challenges with Strala. Strala has expanded naturally and organically over time. And there's always this pause that Mike and I take and we try to look for people 
a little bit further along in their wisdom, <laughs> a little bit smarter than us in so many ways that can help guide us in this way. So huge gratitude to Jeff for guiding us in how to use our energy for good when we expand and do all the things that we do with Strala Yoga. So literally grab your notebooks. I'm not joking around. <laughs> Press pause if you need to and enjoy. gosh. Thanks so much, Jeff, for taking this time again to hang out with me and share your wisdom and experience and just general awesomeness with uh, with the folks out there. So thanks for being here. Yeah, great to be with you. Cool. So if it's all right with you, I I want to know more that I can't find out from your websites <laughs> and various videos of learning about you. So the first time I started hearing about your vibe. I think it came through the speakers at Kula Yoga in the very challenging class of your lovely wife, Skylar, who kicked my butt many times <laughs> and, and everybody else is in the room as well. And Mike was telling me something about Skylar would go away and go on retreat, you know, personal retreat, and, and you would have all of this music that you're working on and you were doing these things kind of together. And then I remember those moments when she would come back into the class and there'd be new music and all of this interesting and kind of strange in a really cool way soundtrack to this class that was incredibly hard, but the music kind of somehow kept it going in this, this way. So... I knew you through through that in a way, and I thought it was really cool that you guys were kind of doing that thing connected. So do you mind sharing a little bit of the music in your life? Yeah, music has always been a significant thread in my life. My grandfather um, made the dubious financial move of quitting cardiology in his 50s to become a full-time gypsy violinist, um, <laughs> which was uh, made the family uh, roll an eye or two, but he was happier really in that cognitive absence of being completely lost in his music. And my brother is a very, very well-known virtuosic guitar player who opened for the Rolling Stones and played with Dave Matthews and all that stuff. So so uh, I inherited just a tiny little bit of it um, and spent the majority of my college years um, playing music. I was in a, a bluegrass or traditional American music band and I was a DJ on the radio station at, at WKCR, which was uh, the radio station at Columbia University. And at that juncture, we were transmitted off the World Trade Center. So we actually had um, significant reach. And uh, it was difficult because the, the show, which was called Moonshine, was every Sunday morning. And for a college student, Sunday mornings <laughs> were a little tr tricky. Um, but uh, they gave me just enough budget to travel through the South and take my band and... Um, book ourselves on these bluegrass festivals and we were like the first of 50 bands that would play so we'd go on wow. at like 8 a.m in the morning but it got me backstage with an old tape recorder and I got to interview 
all these first generation bluegrass musicians, which was sort of a huge cultural awakening for me. And yeah, so I was very anchored in music and both playing music and ethnomusicology and how music can be a, a, a universal kind of language that can, um, can really cut through a lot of division and polarization. And um, it's, it's non-representational in a lot of ways. Music is just is reality. It's not a symbol that we give to reality, which is um, a way to bring people together. Something, some form of common humanity kind of lights up parts of the brain, no matter where you're from or what culture you're anchored in. So I loved music for a million different reasons. And um, I worked for RCA Records out of college and I had a cool gig there drawing from their library, pulling together um, classical music for Generation X, of which I am a part so I sat there in a mastering studio with every single seminal classical recording that you could possibly think of, every significant conductor and instrumentalist and soloist at my fingertips and put together, I think, 250 different classical music compilations. So I brought a lot of that knowledge and experience and passion into starting a, a record label and a management company for musicians and uh, this was just a small little concern, but we had a few little successes. And we were based out of Warren Street, initially Murray Street, but Warren Street, which is uh, a funky little street at that juncture in the Tribeca district of lower Manhattan, very near the financial district, very near the World Trade Center. And uh, in the wake of the tragedy uh, of 9-11, um, a lot of the creatives that were in my little building moved out. Uh, there was a photo studio, I believe on the fourth floor. Anyone who had lived in Manhattan during that period in the wake of 9-11 remembers it. And it was a really horrifying, but also special time that the collective grief really did bring a lot of people together. Also inspired a lot of people to do things that they might not have otherwise done. And one of those people was uh, Skylar. So she um, decided to open a Kula Yoga Project literally out of the ashes of 9-11 right there uh, um, in late 2001. I think she opened officially in early 2002 um, because we were in that little radius where you couldn't really access the property very easily. And, uh, and she was just right upstairs from my music company. And so if you remember those cockeyed lime green steps, you know, that seemed interminable, that opened into initially just a one-room studio, it sort of grew a bit over the 20 years that it existed. But it was right upstairs. And so, you know, I was you know, on the second floor and had, you know, we were in office, but you know, we had keyboards and music and vinyl and all this stuff just kicking around and an endless stream of musicians, you know, coming in. And, you know, over time, you know, we put hard chocolate in each other's peanut butter, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you will, in, in all sorts of different experimental ways. And the, obviously that culminated 
eventually in the creation of Wanderlust, which really started as sort of a, a, a yoking of music and yoga, but had its kind of original intimations in that little funky, humble studio where, uh, yeah, I got an opportunity to test drive uh, some music um, from time to time and, you know, fuse it into patterns of, of asana sequences and breath and try to align the beats per minute with the breath rate and all these kinds of like sometimes ill-fated <laughs> experiments. But this was the beginning of, of you know, Skylar and my professional journey together. Um, we have obviously a personal journey that goes back into the 80s mm-hmm. now. Um, but um, yeah, this uh, fusion of, of music and mysticism or creativity and Eastern religion, that's been a thread that is still, it's actually more prominent in my life now. Um, as you can see, I don't know if this is a video podcast or not, but I'm surrounded by keyboards wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in my little studio here and also have a copy of the Tao Te Ching. <laughs> so oh, that's amazing. I'm still, uh, still going you know, in my life. It's so cool. I remember back then it was so fresh and kind of exactly what Mike and I were both looking for. We wanted to do yoga and be serious about yoga, but we wanted to have it feel contemporary and like what we were both going through in our lives right then and there. And Mike was a responder at the World Trade and we met, gosh, I know I know he started going there around that time. I'll have to ask him about what year, but I know that was really part of the whole community and the specialness of, of that space. But then also this, the toughness of the yoga and kind of getting it out of your system was just amazing when it matched with this music that kind of kept you going. And I, I just loved it as well. And I remember other yoga friends would say, oh, you can't play music and yoga. And I'm like, come on, this is, this is it. This is everything. And who doesn't love music and who doesn't crave a connection to themselves and community and this, this spiritual self. So I think you guys really started yeah, I that. think we were part of a wave. I mean, I have a lot more, I don't know, perhaps intellectual outlook on it now, you know, as I've really refined my practices more. I mean, you know, when you're fully immersed in music, you are lost in the present moment, really. That's why the musicians in, in some ways are the great Buddhas, is that they have an opportunity to experience that cognitive absence where they are essentially yoking intention and action. And that is flow state. That is a mystical experience, essentially. So to be able to leverage music, this sort of portal to presence um, with a physical practice whose target is presence um, is uh, uh, makes a whole lot of sense. But, you know, of course, at that juncture for me, it was yeah. completely just sort of intuitive and experimental. Um, mm. But now as I kind of have a little bit of 2020 on it, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that intuition, that instinct was a mm-hmm. good one. Uh, and now 
I have a little bit more intellectual scaffolding around it. Yeah, it's cool. I came from dance my whole life. So finding mm. Kula and that place and, and that experience just felt like this obviously makes sense. And also why isn't it everywhere else? <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I, I feel the same way about dance. I mean, you know, no dancer's goal is to finish the routine. <laughs> you know, otherwise... <laughs> the fastest dancer would be the best dancer, you know, right? And there are some very talented, fast dancers. But, you know, the, the goal of dance is to dance, mm-hmm. is to be completely there in the moment dancing. Um, and again, to sort of yoke movement with, um, with action and intention and to find perfect awareness of your body and space in a completely uh, non-discursive or cognitive way. It just becomes a sensation, a feeling. And, and that is what awakening is. It's a sensation of connection. And then we layer all these words and symbols on top of it to try to explain it to each other. But, when you, <laughs> but you know as a dancer that feeling when you are just completely lost, you know, and then people then become lost in your lostness. That's why we go see dance or go to see music, hear music, to become lost in someone else's lostness, to share that experience of complete, utter connection or interdependence. And so this is the, these things all do actually make a lot of sense. (laughs) It's so cool. But then you, you made it humongous into this wanderlust, lostness festival that was just a complete takeover. And I also think that was maybe you have more insight kind of looking back now, but maybe that was the beginning of the word wellness because I I remember, and I'm sure you do, going back, you know, it was sort of mind, body, spirit, and and that was it. There was well-being, but there was no big thing that we're all going to, you know, do together. Maybe there was a few hippies here and there or some picture of the 70s or a studio around the corner, but but you kind of took this and gathered lots of different people and styles and groups and kind of took the took the show on the road. <laughs> so how'd you figure out how to do that? <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of it was just a product of my direct experience. I spent, you know, the aughts backstage at every significant music festival in the world. Uh, I was traveling all over the world with bands that I represented. And, you know, some of my best friends were starting Bonnaroo and Austin City Limits and uh, Lollapalooza and all these jazz festivals all over Europe. So I was backstage at all of these events, watching them unfold, often had a lot of insight into just the infrastructure from a production operations perspective and from bringing them to market and, you know, branding and ticketing and some of the more prosaic elements of, of <laughs> bringing a festival to life. So that was my experience and, and my uh, social medium, my culture. And of course, you know, so is yoga really through my wife. And so I would you know, tag along on umpteen million bumpy trips in the name of yoga, <laughs> often to Costa Rica where Skyler was leading retreats. And, you know, there, there we were in the middle of the rainforest, generally like 
30 millennial women and a couple of gay gentlemen and me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, waking up with the sun and you know, meditating and surfing and doing yoga and, you know, making food together and being in community, but not in some sort of um, overly sanctimonious or mawkish way. Like at night, you know, everyone have a glass of wine and play music and hang out and get into really lively discussions and inevitably like hook up somewhere or whatever, you know, there was, <laughs> it was fun and vibrant and it had sort of a festival feel mm. to it. So I was like, hmm, you know, like what is my <laughs> expression of Austin City Limits? You know, well, it's not going to be 50,000 people staring at a stage. You know, it's going to be something more interactive. It's going to be something that combines all of these elements of well-being. Now, you're right. I don't think well-being was a codified term at that juncture. But for me, yoga and meditation and being outdoors and being in community and drinking biodynamic wine and organic food or whatever, those things were just naturally a part of my life of the things that I felt naturally just complemented each other within an overall greater lifestyle. So I was like, okay, well, is there a way that we could make the biggest yoga retreat of all time um, and, and pull all of these disparate elements together into one experience? And, um, you know, that was the question that was posed deep in the rainforest of Costa Rica. And then, you know, fast forward many years later, um, it did become quite a significant effort and concern. I think at the very, very peak, we had 68 events in 20 countries on an annual basis. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, um, and I have really mixed feelings about it, to be honest, in retrospect. Um, and we can we can probe those, but and and they're not disconnected in to some of the conversations that we've had previously about the nature of business and and how to run a a healthy business, particularly within the context of well being. It was a effervescent, energetic time, you know, to launch this idea, Wanderlust, and you know, for it to be embraced the way it was in its time and to be helping to shape a culture and be part of it and, and ride the wave of a culture that was naturally fomenting and, and gathering momentum. But to be kind of on the bleeding edge of it was, was really, really exciting. It was in some ways, I think, intoxicating and fueled a kind of growth that I would now look back at on and categorize it as unsustainable. But, um, but in its time, it was awesome. And we, we enabled a lot of community. We fostered so many different relationships that still are such a huge part of my life now. I mean, I, it's, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get someone that says, oh yeah, I met you know, my partner at Wanderlust and then we got married and then we did this or this business relationship happened. It, it became sort of like a hodge for... <laughs> you know, progressively minded, wellness oriented people. And, um, and that was probably the part that I'm most proud of in retrospect is how many people have their, uh, that Wanderlust served as sort of the social vortex for so many different relationships. That's really cool. Oh, I don't know how 
you guys did it. <laughs> it seems yeah. like so much, so much uh, smoke coming out of the ears in all directions as well. Uh, do you mind sharing some of the some of the challenges and the awesomeness? Is the awesome part seems so obvious from you know just the energy of hearing you talk about it, but everybody that that knew about it, everybody that was there, everybody that saw it online, and you know wanted to go to the next one. You know, it was definitely a a big part of not just yoga culture, but music and wellness and, and all of it. But, but what, was, what was hard? Well, I mean, there was just the business of it that was a landmine, really, because, you know, there was so much excitement around it when we launched. And uh, I mean, and I, and I don't want to say that it was completely disruptive. I mean, there were... Yoga Journal was doing conferences before Wanderlust was doing festivals. But I suppose the operative word there would be conference to festival. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we imbued this idea of community arts infused yoga and wellness with like vibrancy and outdoors and nature and fun. And so that was infectious. Uh, for for people in its time. And I think the culture was punctuated by a little more hope. This was 2009 when we launched. So that was while we were going through a lot of economic turmoil, which was honestly part of the challenge because we had to raise money for Wanderlust. And we did it like four times because every time we did it, it would fall out because we were in in a recession at that juncture. So anytime we thought we had the financing and then the financing would disappear. So and that's taught me some great lessons. It's like, it's never done until the money is wired <laughs> in the bank. <laughs> I don't really get to uh, connected or attached to deals or whatever until they're done. And that was uh, that relatively strong stomach was a result of a lot of wanderlust, turmoil, <laughs> and tumult. You know, there was the excitement of birthing something new. And then that was balanced with, the absolutely interminable list of logistics that were involved scale events. And that was manageable somewhat in the early years. But when we got into year six or seven and we had so many of these events and we had essentially two different uh, fleets of semis crisscrossing the country at any time, oh, and my gosh. <laughs> you know, like 150 some odd employees, almost the overwhelming majority of whom were logistics and operations people. I mean, we just basically became a logistics company, even though we had a sort of veneer of sexy creativity, wellness. And, and that's okay. I mean, that's like being a grown up. <laughs> There's lots of logistics. <laughs> but, you know, I think. But it was easy to get lost and for some of the enthusiasm around it to get a little bit buried underneath like, you know, food and beverage minimums and the price of mm. gas or whatever. And, it, you know, I think in retrospect, and maybe we'll get into this, but it was those early years when we had just really two events in the first couple of years. We had Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, uh, you know, in the Sierra Nevadas of, of you know, Eastern California. And then we had another event in Stratton in Vermont. 
Southern Vermont. And um, those were the two original sites. And those events were so, so special. Tahoe, just the physical nature of Tahoe was like Wagnerian. You walk in, it was like, you know, it's like very, um, you know, the air was crisp and, you know, you were at 8,200 feet and just like, oh, you know, and it's like the, you'd show up and you literally would be staring, you know, at the mountain range and that valley that was just kissed on the forehead by God. It's so beautiful. And it was almost like a Photoshop image. You know, it was so brilliant. And then (laughs) Vermont was just the opposite. It was like misty and Debussy, Satie-esque, and just like kind of little pentatonic raindrops falling or mist. I don't know. It's just very, they were both very different in character, but just wonderful events and super successful. And... I talked to with Skylar and my co-founder Sean with a great deal of nostalgia about those early events because um, you know we didn't really need you know private equity investment and we didn't need all of this staff and all the, you know we just had these two really wonderful profitable humble events and uh, and in many ways I think if we had just kind of stayed there we would have had a much happier and sustainable decade. But that's not what we did. And I don't have necessarily regrets, but, uh, but I think the growth was really hard. I mean, this is hardly a new story, but we were ambitious. And, um, and you know, so much of the sustenance financially for Wanderlust came from partnerships, corporate partnerships, to be completely blunt, um, you know, much more than the ticket revenue. And so that placed a lot of pressure on me to run around the world, but particularly United States, to corporate boardrooms and as sort of the gatekeeper to the active millennial female um, and yeah, and sell <laughs> wow. access to her, you know? Um, and you know, that sounds a little crass mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, it wasn't like that, but it was like, this was, you know, we were amassing highly educated, generally r- r- relatively affluent women who cared about their wellness, who cared about the environment, um, who cared about their communities and we're also incredibly independent thinkers. And that is a demographic that is very, very difficult for many, many brands to communicate with. So we sort of became this bridge in some ways for Lululemon or whatever, you know, fill in the blank organic yogurt brand, you know, to, you know, to reach that particular consumer. And over the years, what I found to be sort of morally acceptable as a partner, sort of the edges of that got pushed. Yeah, we were partnering with Toyota around their Prius, you know, around their electric vehicle fleet. And that's good. I own a Prius now, or at least one actually. But it's still a car company that based their whole, you know, history upon the development of a combustion engine around a limited resource. So, you know, 
Yeah, you know, so I was fighting, you know, dealing with that sort of thing all the time or Lululemon or Adidas, you know, both of whom became major, major partners for Wanderlust. And we did, you know, co-branded apparel lines and, you know, um, but if you really look into the practices of how they manufacture their clothing, it's, it's not always sterling. And so I was, you know, making a lot of these uh, sacrifices in the name of the greater good and, uh, and in the name of spreading these modalities to as many people as possible and fostering community, all of which were noble pursuits and noble goals. But the means were not always completely aligned with the ends. And then, you know, I would go you know, I'd triumphantly ride my white horse back from Portland or, or Vancouver or whatever corporate headquarters I would visit. And I would be like, oh, great. You know, I, I got X dollar commitment. And that's the good news, you know. And then, but they also want us to do 15 more events uh, because they need to justify the scale of their partnership by hitting all of these different DMAs, these, all these markets. So then off we'd go and we would like hire more people and find more parks and find more data. <laughs> and, you know, this was, um, and we just, you know, kind of got swallowed up in the momentum uh, and the ethos of growth. And that was my life for a very, very long time. I spoke the language of growth. It is a very particular kind of language. It's got all these words that I learned. My wife would be like, what language are you speaking? Um, (laughs) And you go into these boardrooms or whatever, corporate offices, and I would turn from Jeff, normal Jeff guy, into this other guy that spoke marketing speak. And the more I, I became that guy, the more words like that came out of my mouth, the more people like that I attracted and then my life became just this big exercise in growth and in this language. And the more I've studied about like medical science and human physiology and all this kind of stuff, there's like growth pathways <laughs> and then there's protective and restoration pathways in the body. So if you're always feeding your growth pathways, like, you know, mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR, which is like your growth, a cellular pathway in your body for growth, you know, you're going to eventually you know, develop cancer. Um, you're going to de- eventually develop other forms of chronic disease that are associated with incessant growth. So those were some of the, you know, the challenges, um, I think, on a macro level. And then there was also just the management of large groups of people internally that became a significant challenge for me because... I don't love managing. That's not one of my superpowers, although I've had to actually get significantly better at this. But it was not an instinctual thing to manage a lot of people and to really invest in team um, and to really nurture um, institutional knowledge and personal growth and development. And so I really had to learn that on the fly and, um, and, you know, I did do some corporate development trainings, actually Lululemon for uh, on one of their very positive attributes was that they did 
invest a lot in personal development and corporate leadership training. It was a little bit based in landmark for them at the beginning, but, um, uh, but you know, they yeah. put me through a training <laughs> and that was actually honestly really, really helpful because I didn't go to business school you know, at all. In mm-hmm. fact, I was a musician, as you now know, mm-hmm. and musicians are awful at managing things. <laughs> Very good at connecting with source, <laughs> awful at managing. So yeah, so, you know, leadership was something that I had to learn on the fly. And um, just the nature of an events business with a lot of young people in, packed into an office, um, if there's not great leadership and great management, it can become extremely chaotic. And also just the nature of what we were doing, we're traveling all over the world, staying up until all hours, just because that's the nature of events, you know, whether you like it or not. And that got chaotic. As I said, I've learned a lot about both those things, about managing how to manage and empower individuals and create kind of nurturing environments for them. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It makes so much sense. And I'm so happy that Daisy loves this movie, The Lorax, because after speaking with you and we were thinking about figuring ourselves in, in ways, and we, we, you know, we think about this every few years, just not necessarily only biggering and growing and being in that mindset, but just are we doing the right things? Are we spending our time in useful ways? And, and we have a great life. So thank you. You helped us so much in perhaps skipping some of those itchy stages if we were even able to get there. But do you have advice for people like me and Mike and folks doing things to maybe stay at that Tahoe and Vermont? If you have that moment where it's feeling so wonderful, how do you not, maybe it's okay to, obviously it was great what you did in the whole trajectory and there's no sounds like there's nothing wrong with what happened and you learned a lot and reached a lot of people and have all these stories to share, but, but maybe there's a little bit of a warning for, for some of us to not go there <laughs> in that way. I should first say that I have um, no issue with, with scale or impact, I, I guess I would say. And, you know, I, I don't um, have any umbrage for people that have built very large enterprises. But I do think that there are some aspects to focus on to keep one kind of in check and to maintain one's own well-being. And and one of those is really to concentrate on process without 
over-attachment to product. So this could be considered, I, I suppose, kind of a, a Buddhist learning. There is a, this, um, this notion of Brahma-vihara, which is kind of this uh, you know, reflection of integrated consciousness that is part of samadhi. And one of those is upeka, which is best translated from Sanskrit as, as equanimity. And equanimity is, I think, misinterpreted by a lot of people as, you know, kind of passivity. Although I might say, given the state of the world, some passivity might not be a bad direction. But, but it doesn't mean <laughs> dispassionate. You can bring all of your creative energy and effervescence to something without being overly attached to the product or the result of that. And uh, I think when you really stay in the present moment, honestly, and focus on process and recognize it, and the impact and the scale will come, you know, essentially from just ethically chopping wood and, and carrying water every day. Uh, so that would be one thing that I would say. I, I would say that the other thing that, that I think keeps scale and and scope in balance for me has been this John Maynard Keynes quote that I've tried to sort of apply to my own business. And I always mangle it, but it's something to the effect that it's easier to ship recipes than cakes and biscuits. <laughs> like you sense. can apply <laughs> that to a lot of different kinds of businesses. So in retrospect, like for Wanderlust, like I might've just kept Tahoe and Vermont and then created a model that decentralized the ability to create wanderlust very much the way Ted did it with TEDx and be like, hey, listen, if you want to create wanderlust in your own home studio or in your own hometown or whatever, here's the recipe to do it. But I'm not going to ship you the cakes and biscuits. And I think that is a more sustainable way of, of approaching economy in general. I mean, why is the butter? from New Zealand cheaper than the butter that the farmer down the street makes. That's fucked up. I mean, and that's the ill effects of, of globalism, to be honest. So let's empower local people in their economies to create vibrancy. It's like what, we, what we're ending up with right now is a very flat world. You know, we have this kind of we have spikes on the other end. We have three men in the United States that own more cumulative wealth than the bottom 50% of the population combined. We have media platforms that have a disproportionate influence and that are run by algorithms that exploit human negativity bias and create a tremendous amount of fear and outrage for the purposes of, of ad revenue and watch time. You know, it, it, we have billions upon billions of chickens, pigs, and cattle, and almost no biodiversity here at the other end. We have cash crops and monocropping, soy and sorghum and corn and wheat at the expense of asparagus and broccoli and kale. And like, so, I mean, what I'm saying is that the healthiest ecosystems are the ones that are most biodiverse. 
because nature selects for the best traits and they need a multiplicity of genes or ideas or fill in the blank to do that. So what you want is a bushy world. You want, I mean, you know, on a piece of paper, it looks like a bell curve where the income in a society or the wealth in a society is more or less evenly distributed around the middle. We have a very strong middle class and a very small, small, small upper class and a small, small class that's more immiserated. But obviously you're trying to grow into this middle class. But the same is true for like Main Street. You know, we look at our Main Streets in many of our rural towns and, you know, they're all boarded up. Why? Because Walmart moved in and because the only groceries that are available are at a convenience store. You know, when you used to have that, you know, that local grocer and the local newspaper and the local jazz club and the local yoga, yoga studio, and that's what created vibrancy and connection. So now we're sitting in this very, very flat, flat, flat world with spikes on the end. And that is dangerous because... You know, closed systems devolve into entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. And so what we're always, what, this is now what we're doing. We have these kind of this atomized world that is not focused and organized within connection. I mean, probably, you know, like in Buddhism, the, you know, reality or the course of nature is depicted as Indra's net. So this web, if you will, like a spider's web that goes on forever. And in each junction of that web is a diamond or a crystalline drop of water that reflects every other drop of water. Well, that is actually how life or the foundational intelligence of the world of the universe is organized. We are completely interdependent. I don't make my own oxygen and plants don't make their own carbon dioxide, you know, and you can pull on that forever. And I could spend probably 12 hours talking just about the carbon cycle or whatever you want to talk about to underscore the nature of interdependence. And so, you know, this is, I think, you know, part of the wake up that, you know, we need to be, undergoing as a, as humanity, but also like as business leaders, you know, so like what kind of reality do we want to create, you know, with our businesses? Do we want to create like ones that have deep, meaningful uh, impact in their own communities? Or do we want to be kind of like on the very edge in this flat universe? Um, and, and, you know, it's like, who loves Facebook? Like nobody. It's like we're addicted to it, sort of, but we nobody likes it. It's, <laughs> you know, that, that's a, kind of become more and more of one of my guidelines. Like I have this wonderful book. Um, it's called Small is Beautiful. It's by E.F. Schumacher. The, the subtitle of it, Economics as if People Mattered. Mm. And, <laughs> you know, it really, it, it, it's an old book. And it posits a very, very different kind of economic reality and it's not socialist per se, but it values people first. It's ethics-based. It's values-based. You know, offers this kind of alternative to endless biggering, you know, and, and like a new way to understand, you know, fossil fuels, for example, 
as not, it's not a renewable unit resource. It needs to be treated as expendable capital. And, you know, when it's valued that way and all of the external externalities are put into the equation, well, then we start to be more careful with it. And, you know, there, there's all this kind of connection to, you know, there's a whole field of thought around Buddhist economics, which is based around these concepts that essentially emanated from the Buddha, which is that, you know, the source of suffering is trishna or thirst, a kind of endless craving and clinging. And, and that emerges from a sensation that we have that we are separate individuals and separate from each other and separate from the divine and separate from nature. And as soon as we feel ourselves as separate, then we begin to compare our own plight and the symbol that we have for ourselves, which is the ego, with other symbols that other people. So, oh, you've got this fancy house or this fancy car or this fancy plaque on your office door or whatever. And, you know, as we know, comparison is the invisible thief of joy. Well, this leads to a life of craving, of essentially always thinking in the future of like, if only and only if I can get that you know, house with the turrets and the gargoyle statuary or whatever, then I'll be happy. And then of course you move into that house and then there's a fancier house down the street and this is known as the hedonic treadmill. And, you know, this fuels and kind of unbridled kind of capitalism that is absolutely 100% growth focused all the time. In fact, if we're not growing at three or 4% a year, oh my God, what's going to happen, you know? And then, of course, we're so afraid of losing what we have that we cling to that while we crave over here. <laughs> so we're clinging to the past and craving something in the future, and we're never here right now. But that's the only place there is. So we're living in a delusion. And, you know, Buddhist economics, it recognizes that, A, we are all interconnected. So once you think about that and think about ideas connected to, I always mispronounce that, patitian mutapata, but um, dependent origination that essentially like my butterfly wings impact your reality. Then we begin to change our focus from individual wealth and accumulation to collective wealth. And what does that actually really look like? It's funny because like there's, this kind of rise in like nationalism around the world right now. And it's highly, you know, associated with like Trump and America first and nativism and xenophobia and othering and scapegoating. But there is another way to interpret nationalism or redefine nationalism as a certain kind of patriotism based on sacrifice of like, I am willing to give something up. I'm willing to pay my taxes so some anonymous person across the United States might get health care or might be able to avail themselves of a good public school education. And to me, that's what like real nationalism is within the folk context of sort of like Buddhist economics or whatever you want to call it. 
these, I think, are the shifts that we are inevitably going to have to make as a society and as a global community, or we're just going to get weeded out. Every smart person I know basically is talking about the sixth grade extinction right now. And it's not like it's happening somewhere out there. It's, it's already happening. I mean, it's just like, look at the coral reefs and loss of species and loss of habitats and, you know, the 104 degrees it was in England yesterday, the hottest temperature ever. So we're in the middle of it. And, you know, nature is, moves on, you know, and, you know, maybe there's just space for a billion of us here instead of 10. And, you know, that's harsh. And I hope that that's not where we're going because I think there is another path, but a lot of it, I think is going to be a very a shift away from endless growth mentality, endless individual accumulation towards collective health and sustainability and a balance between growth and restoration. It's got me thinking about how I love leading yoga and also showing other people how to lead it and exactly everything you're mm, yeah. saying so well. It doesn't really matter what you say if you're not connected to the people, if you're not making yourself a part of the experience because people feel how you feel about yourself. And that connection is just so obvious no matter what's happening. So I think there's such a wonderful opportunity for us with Strala to explain that and to keep it simple and let people go out and be bushy and not control everybody and not be in charge of everybody's light bulbs and just enjoy that together project that we are and, and keep listening to people like you so we don't fall off track and do weird things. <laughs> do, do you mind sharing a little bit about your, your project now? Because it really feels like Commune is well, it's from what I can see, it's all online. So it's, you know, you don't have to be running around to all of those semi-truck races around the world anymore. Yeah. So that's probably nice, but it really seems like it's bringing a lot of useful awareness content from lots of different areas together in a, in a really simple, beautiful way. Yeah, I found a good balance with it. So for lack of a kind of more lengthy description, I suppose we could be categorized as the master class for well-being. So we have a platform that has currently about 110 courses on it taught by absolutely brilliant thought leaders and authors, teachers, doctors, um, across the broadest definition of well-being. So that could be integrative and functional medicine or systems biology um, or mindfulness or yoga regenerative agriculture, and then there's a lot of societal well-being courses on there. So um, like I said, regenerative agriculture, but also courses on civics and how to run for office, uh, how to socially organize. Um, there's a course that we made on implicit bias. So, you know, it's really trying to bring a, a you know, a broad understanding of what it means to be holistically well. Um, and, and, author, and offer that to people through courses. The balance of it for me is that, you know, we have a physical location up in Topanga, Mobility um, Lab and, um, and content production facility. So we have 
um, we can sleep about 31 people up there. And so we, um, we have retreats, yoga retreats. We film all of our content up there. So we bring teachers to stay at this beautiful property. It was kind of Neil Young's old property up in Topanga. And we built all these, you know, cabins and yoga shalas and production studios up there. So it's just a wonderful place to host teachers. And we put together these fantastic masterminds up there with uh, um, around big tables. So, you know, I still get to do what I love to do, which is foster um, in real life, immersive community experiences. Um, but it's just not at the scale of thousands upon thousands. And, uh, and then, yeah, ship recipes um, to people um, based upon, you know, the folks that were able to assemble there. And yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, just, and it's so gratifying for me. I also kind of host my podcast up there from up there generally. So, you know, every week there's just someone who is a hundred times smarter than me and that I get to, you know, siphon off some of their wisdom. So anyone from Marianne Williamson, we shot her presidential announce video up there. But Marianne and Zach Bush and Dr. Mark Hyman and Deepak Chopra and Wim Hof and Russell Brand. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. We've kind of hosted up there. Um, Sean Korn's up there five times a year holding retreats, trainings, because she, she lives right next door. So it's a dream for her just to hold her trainings and also sleep in her own bed, which is fun because Sean was such a big part of our Wanderlust world. And, um, and I would see her <laughs> kind of, at, uh, you know, scattershod mountain resorts across the world. And then now I just get to see her at my house. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, it's a, that's awesome. It's really been a, a wonderful project and uh, I have a wonderful, wonderful team and uh, a very, very cohesive team. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm basically trying to reify all of my learnings and create a business about well-being that is also well and that is also fostering my own well-being. And <laughs> if that's smaller, that's okay. My sense is, honestly, is that it won't be smaller. It'll probably be bigger because it doesn't care. And, uh, and I'm also a lot smaller. <laughs> Just I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, so much healthier. And I actually, instead of like running around, you know, eating snacks at airports and uh, going out and, you know, drinking beers with the head of marketing from X, I'm being able to leverage all of these modalities and practices and medical science and everything I've learned about metabolism, physiology and gastroenterology and the microbiome and epigenetics and neuroplasticity. I'm able to channel that here and not just fake it. And so I'm like, 51 and I look well, at least <laughs> like um, well my wife tells me that I look better than I did when I was 20. That's exciting and very uh, and very gratifying and fun. Yeah so it's it's possible maybe would you say for people that a good measure of if you're running your business or your solo idea or your big company how healthy you are as opposed to how healthy the the business is. Maybe there's some sort of, you know, 
chart, we can yeah. move it, on from that. <laughs> it, yeah, it's funny. I mean, these things are all kind of, uh, you know, the microcosm is almost always reflected in the macrocosm. You know, you can do that and have a lot of fun with it forever. I interviewed Bruce Lipton yesterday for like three hours. And, you know, wow. We kind of grooved on that for a really, really long time. <laughs> Uh, I'd love to talk about that, but that's probably not applicable to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, you look at countries and you're like, well, what are the metrics for success in a country? Well, we're focused on the stock exchange or like the GDP, you know, these an- antiquated metrics that have no reflection of real true well-being, really. You know, Robert Kennedy has this wonderful, wonderful speech. He's talking about the GDP and how it also, inside the GDP, you're also calculating gun sales, um, prison revenue, you know? And obviously, you know, we've seen kind of over the last 20 years, particularly like this efflorescence of income inequality. Well, you know, the stock market or the S&P 500 is not really a good metric or reflection of people's economic well-being. So we need new metrics, you know, for success. I mean, for a very long time, it's like, what's your top line revenue? <laughs> oh, okay, well, oh, it's 100 million. Great, are you profitable? <laughs> well, no, we're working towards that. <laughs> oh, well, what is your EBITDA? Look? Well, we lost 50 million. Wait, <laughs> so you made $100 million in revenue, you lost $50 million. Like, so you spent mm-hmm. $150 million? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's how, you know, so many of these companies operate. And then they just go out back out to capital markets and raise more money and raise more money and raise more money. And, and yeah, I've seen companies grow and be successful that way and then sell and, you know, but m- more than not right now, I've seen companies just crater with that particular, you know, philosophical approach. And so, yeah, you know, just grow slowly, be s- sustainable, you know, don't take on more than you can actually execute. Uh, value yourself and your health and the health of your team. Boy, man, at Wanderlust, I was, I think of what I did to people sometimes, man. I'm like, if there's any shame I have, it's like, I'd wake up with a new idea and that was cool, you know, and some of them were good, you know, and I'd be like, hey, and I'd send an email out at (laughs) six in the morning. Well, that wasn't very nice to do um, because people are still sleeping. And then they'd, you know, would get into 20 people's email box and they would be focused on what they had to accomplish that day. And all of a sudden I'd give them a new idea to execute around, you know, and they'd be like, well, what should I be doing? Should I be doing what I was supposed to be doing before I woke up or what you want me to do now? And, you know, this is like, I, man, I've gotten so much better at taming myself in that regard. 10% of a good idea is having it. You know, the rest is just really motivating around a centralized vision. And so if you have a vision for your company, codify that in a simple mission statement and then develop global fluency around that mission statement. And so everybody's on the same page and don't deviate from it. You can be nimble, but don't deviate from it willy-nilly just at six in the morning and send an email. (laughs) You know, and if you have a very clear mission and you develop fluency around it, then you can just let go because you've given the lens to people through which they can make their own decisions and you just empower people 
have great acceptance for mistakes, that's fine. But really just let go and empower people and don't feel the need to make every decision. I mean, that was that's just a recipe for disaster. Who wants to make every decision? That's just anxiety. That is the <laughs> distillation of anxiety. You know, like the Tao, the Tao Te Ching has all this incredible um, teaching around Taoist leadership. And it was, it was really geared in and of its time and whatever, 500 BC towards finding new methods or systems for government because the dynasty at that point in China was falling apart and this was the time of the warring states. And there was hundreds of philosophies that burgeoned up kind of through that time, Confucianism and Taoism sort of becoming the most popular that we know now. But, you know, Lao Tzu, you know, he, he always says um, that uh, to lead like the ocean, you know, the, the ocean is the lowest body of water and all streams and estuaries and creeks flow down into the ocean. So be humble, listen, be quiet. And the ocean, you know, is just powerful and vast, but it's also the lowest body of water. And so, you know, there, there's all these beautiful metaphors that he weaves in there about, you know, the, that the most successful leader is, operates a community in which the people stand up when something's accomplished and said, look, we did it all by ourselves. <laughs> I can't remember which verse that is, but it's, it's true. It's like, you know, when you set up functional community and healthy hierarchy and then let go and have distributed uh, models of decision-making and empowerment, um, that lends for uh, a really healthy environment. So that's, you know, some of the some of what I'm trying to create now just kind of within the company. And you can do that at a very small scale. You know, you don't have to have hundreds of employees. You can have a couple. So useful and amazing. Oh, thank you so much for taking all this time and sharing so much of your wisdom. My goodness, what are you up to for the rest of the day? Very Philistine question now after all of that. No, <laughs> Sorry. <man>. No, hardly. <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, I get to, uh, uh, so I'm putting out a podcast what is it, tomorrow on mindful eating. And uh, I've amassed a whole bunch of very interesting different authors and thought leaders about this topic. And it's, it's fascinating. And I just like, the cliff notes are, you know, there's this maxim, you are what you eat. That's a little tired. And more precisely, you actually are, the nutrients that you absorb. And um, obviously we absorb nutrients for the production of adenosine triphosphate for energy. We are energy beings. Um, energy is essentially just captured sunlight and that goes through a whole bunch of processes of photosynthesis, et cetera. And we eat plants or we eat animals that have eaten plants. And essentially we then catabolize or metabolize if you want to look at it that way. Uh, captured sunlight. But we don't do it effectively if we are in a state of sympathetic overload. So, you know, when we are just staring at our phone and eating, well, 
part of actually digestion is actually looking at your food and just looking at it start, uh, stimulates the production of certain kinds of, well, like pepsin or hydrochloric acid in your stomach. But even in your, in your saliva, you start to digest the food before you even tasted it. And then, of course, like if you're in a state of fight or flight or amygdala hijack, or whatever, you're looking at your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed or Twitter or TikTok or whatever, and you know there's something out there that is putting you in a state of fear or outrage or you know, sensationalism or scandal or whatever it happens to be, then, you know, you're in this constant state of fight or flight. So what happens there? Well, you know, you're secreting through your HPA access, you know, cortisol, which is um, essentially an epinephrine, which is essentially pushing uh, your blood to your extremities, you know, to your, your, your arms and your legs, because you think that you're being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, like on the Serengeti. Of course, you're on the Serengeti of Facebook, or you know, and so it's a whole different thing. And but what that means is that you don't actually you're not digesting properly. So all these people that have um, bloating or constipation or other digestive issues, a lot of that is to do the fact that we're not putting ourselves into a parasympathetic or rest and digest state when we're consuming our food. So you can can be consuming the best possible regeneratively grown food in the world, but if you're not absorbing the macronutrients properly, then you're not metabolizing properly. You're not producing energy properly. So you might be super low energy um, because you're in sort of a fight or flight state when you're consuming food. This is why actually saying grace or your form of grace or doing a little bit of breath work before you eat or just sitting quietly or expressing gratitude for the farmer or your family that put the food on the table that's all nice thing to do too for a bunch of other reasons, but it's actually also on a hormonal level, putting you in a place to more efficiently be able to metabolize your food. So yeah, I mean, all these things like sitting in community around a table, well, what does that do? Well, that slows down the ingestion of food. So you're slowing the absorption of food, which is a much more efficient way to, to absorb glucose or fats or protein. So, so yeah, so, you know, these are just like little, little things that I, you know, I geek out on and then I'll just kind of pull on for a while and establish sort of a body of, of work around. So that's anyways, I'm working on that <laughs> the rest of the it. day. <laughs> Co-regulating. <laughs> yeah. So good. Well, thanks so much for all the wisdom and your generosity and kindness and humbleness and knowledge and genius and superstardom and all of it. And uh, really grateful to be able to have this time with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. I love what you're doing. I always have been a fan from a distance and now I'm, it's, a, it's a great to be able to be in greater contact with you and with Michael. So thanks so much for what you're doing. You're the best. All right. How full are those notebooks? My goodness. I know mine is full and it keeps overflowing with Jeff's wisdom. So you can keep in touch with Jeff. He's very nice. If you reach out, he'll probably get back to you. He's very busy, but I'm sure you'll have more questions, but you can find the answers to them at jeffkrasno.com. He shares so much on his social media, on Instagram, you can follow One Commune. You can sign up there for the master classes of all the folks that 
Jeff and his team have brought together to share with everyone. And uh, I'm trying to weasel my way in (laughs) to share some ease at some point if they'll have me. But much more importantly, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jeff for taking the time so generously to share with us. Take good care and see you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 